Hello, residents. My name is Zach Olson, and thank you for downloading this month's Deep Dive. In the last case, Mike actually had two patients with sexually transmitted infection, one of which had pelvic inflammatory disease, PID. And that's what I wanted to dive into a bit during this episode. But before we do, this episode was sponsored by Pearson Rabbits Insurance. As you know, at this point, Stephanie Pearson at Pearson Rabbits is my personal disability and life insurance agent. And the reason I like her so much is because she is an educator at heart. She won't just sell you a policy. Being a disabled physician herself, she is there to answer your questions. She's there to help you compare policies between different companies and help you make the best choice for your specific situation. She's an independent agent, which means she is not forced to sell you a policy from any one particular company. She is there to help you pick your best policy for your situation and good own occupation policy, help you purchase it at the right time and make the whole process as painless as possible. I couldn't recommend her more highly. Go to www.pearsonrabbits.com and set up your appointment so you can educate and protect yourself. Now back to our episode. Okay. Pelvic inflammatory disease. You might not know this, but this is a very pertinent topic right now because in 2021, this year, the CDC just released a new set of guidelines on pelvic inflammatory disease. And you will find that many attendings are not even aware of these guidelines yet. So this is an opportunity where you can really make yourself be up to date and you can really shine. I want to be honest with you too. I learned a ton from reading these. So I've read these through a couple times now, and I will say this has directly changed the way that I practice. And um, the way I'm going to do this episode is I'm just going to go through some some quotes, some sections from these guidelines, uh, and then kind of do a little discussion on each of them. There are so many things that really just stood out to me in comparison to the way I was taught to think about PID, uh, to how I'm thinking about it now. And I, I really, truly believe you're going to find this episode very interesting. So let's just go through some of these quotes. First one's a little bit longer. I'm going to kind of shorten it down a little bit. Sexually transmitted organisms, especially gonorrhea and chlamydia, are often implicated. Recent studies report that the proportion of PID cases attributable to gonorrhea and chlamydia is decreasing. Of women who received a diagnosis of acute PID, approximately 50% have a positive test for either of those organisms. And then it goes on to list several organisms uh, that are implicated. Microorganisms that comprise the vaginal flora, flora, such as strict and facultative anaerobes, GART-G vaginalis, H. influenza, um, enteric gram-negative rods, streptococcus, A. galactiae, uh, have been associated with PID. In addition, cytomegalovirus, uh, trichomonas, um, M. hominis, uh, urea litic, litic, oh man, it's been so long since I've been in med school, this is awful, you guys, might be associated with certain PID cases. Data are also indicating that mycoplasma might have a role in PID pathogenesis. It might be associated with cases that have mild symptoms. All right, so basically what this is saying is that when we were taught PID, we were thinking this is a disease, this is a sexually transmitted infection. This is a sexually transmitted infection that went on so long and now 
it's out of control and you have this deep upper genital tract infection of gonorrhea and chlamydia. And the CDC says, right now, that's decreasing. You're talking maybe half of cases are due to gonorrhea and chlamydia. And then they go on to list like 10 other organisms that cause it. Okay. So that was the first thing that stood out to me. Because in my mind, this is already just a disease of people for, that have sexually transmitted infections. And, it, and it's not that. Although those patients are at higher risk. Uh, second quote. Women with PID often have subtle or nonspecific symptoms or are asymptomatic. Women with PID may be asymptomatic. Delay in diagnosis and treatment probably contributes to inflammatory sequelae in the upper genital tract. And again, so, and this was a kind of recurring theme throughout this paper, but it went on to just emphasize how vague the symptoms with PID are. This is going to come into play uh, with the next quote here, um, but even just a little bit of, of discharge or like a lower abdominal pressure or just pain with sex and things like that. Extremely mild, subtle symptoms. These are not people with like frank peritonitis when you examine their abdomen um, or just, you know, vaginal discharge just gushing out. No, it's not like that at all. You can be asymptomatic and have PID. I thought that was fascinating. Third quote, and this is where it gets, uh, starts to get pretty feisty right in here. Regardless of positive predictive value, no single historical, physical, or laboratory finding is both sensitive and specific for the diagnosis of acute PID. Combinations of diagnostic findings that improve either sensitivity detect more women who have PID, or specificity, exclude more women who do not have PID, only do so at the expense of the other, okay? So what is this saying? So the way I was taught to diagnose PID, and I was told to do this a couple different ways. So some people said, you're always doing a bimanual examination, and you're looking for cervical motion tenderness, right? That's the uh, kind of the key, the key phrase. And early on in medical school, I, was, I think I was told the chandelier sign. So not just a little bit of tenderness. I'm not, I'm not female. I imagine that it's always uncomfortable to have a, a guy examine you and do bimanual cervical motion examination and things like that. Um, but, I, you know, I was looking for extreme tenderness on examination. I've had some attendings say so much that um, based off of your abdominal examination, feeling in the suprapubic region and over the, just the uterus on your abdominal examination, you don't even need to do a pelvic exam because if they're not having a lot of tenderness there, then they're probably, they probably don't have uh, true PID. It's, and it's kind of this theme of it. Again, it's just this PID was, I was taught is such severe pain. It's such an obvious diagnosis. And again, this is saying, no, it's actually very, very subtle. And they start to go, and you can read through this, and there's different criteria that they say, you know, you can use to try to diagnose pelvic inflammatory disease. And it's one of these situations that, yes, the more of those criteria that you check, so like the more severe the cervical motion tenderness is, or the more frank amount of discharge that there is, or, or whatever piece of that, yes, that will increase the specificity for pelvic inflammatory disease. However, again, as we said before, you may be completely asymptomatic. All of this to say is that you, as clinicians, have a choice. This is extremely important. You have a choice. What the CDC is saying is that you have two options. You can either diagnose people 
that um, don't actually, you, you'll either be diagnosing people that don't have pelvic inflammatory disease and treating them in an attempt to catch the people that have minimal symptoms and are asymptomatic, or you're only going to be diagnosing and treating people that have a uh, high specificity, lots of findings, and you're going to be missing tons and tons of patients with mild PID, which still carry with it morbidity. Okay. You have two options. You're either going to be over-treating or under-treating. There is no perfect way of do th- to do this. Okay. So then the fourth quote, this is, this to me was the biggest quote from this whole section of this, uh, these guidelines. Presumptive treatment of PID should be initiated for sexually active young women and other women at risk for sexually transmitted infections if they are experiencing pelvic or lower abdominal pain, if no cause for the illness other than possible PID can be identified, or if one of any one of the following three minimum, minimum criteria are present on pelvic examination, which is cervical motion tenderness, uterine tenderness, or adnexal tenderness. Here, listen to this. I mean, this is crazy to me because I was always taught you're going to check your you're just cervical motion tenderness. Do you have severe cervical motion tenderness in PID or not? And what this is saying is that you don't even need cervical motion tenderness. If you are, if you have a high pretest suspicion that this could possibly be PID, maybe they're sexually active with multiple partners, the symptoms have been kind of gradually worsening, you have discharge, even if they don't have cervical motion tenderness, if you can't really find anything else to figure, to, to cause like vague lower abdominal symptoms, you should still probably just initiate treatment for PID. Isn't that fascinating? I, I just find this fascinating because again, I mean, I, I'm an emergency medicine attending. I'm seeing tons of patients, depending on where I'm at, the PAs and nurse practitioners, a lot of this will be going through fast track. I might not be seeing it, but if I'm working at a freestanding, I mean, I'm doing pelvic exams and and having this at least in the differential every shift. And again, I just feel like I must have been way under diagnosing this. I wonder how many people I've missed because how often do you have young women with vague lower abdominal pain and you just kind of, you just kind of blow it off and say it's nothing. And this is saying if they're high risk, you might want to just treat them anyways, even if they don't even have cervical motion tenderness. Fascinating. All right. Um, five talks a little bit about treatment, but again, it kind of had an interesting pearl here too. All regimens used to treat PID should also be effective against gonorrhea and chlamydia because negative endocervical screening for these organisms does not rule out upper genital tract infection. Again, so frequently I, I feel like in the back of my mind, I was like, well, I don't think it's PID. I guess I'll send off some swabs just in case. Maybe they're a little bit higher risk. Um, and if they're, they're positive, then we can initiate treatment. But this is saying that you might have negative swabs for gonorrhea and chlamydia in a patient with PID and an upper genital tract infection. I don't, there's no number on how often that happens. But again, it's just kind of this, this theme of the symptoms are very vague. There's no great way to diagnose this and rule this in or rule this out. The CDC, again, is just kind of recommending that we just treat people if we don't have any other good cause of these symptoms. There's a couple other interesting things, too. They just really talk about, like, IUDs. If it, and they said if an IUD user receives a diagnosis of PID, the IUD does not need to be removed. I thought that was interesting. Um, another one was mycoplasma should be suspected in cases of persistent or recurrent uh, urethritis or cervicitis and considered uh, for PID in these scenarios. In the treatment, you can treat the mycoplasma with the doxycycline that you do for PID. 
However, a lot of times, if it's not getting better with that, you're doing azithromycin on top of that or a fluoroquinolone on top of that. And you can read these guidelines. Um, this might, you're not diagnosing mycoplasma, PID out of the ER. I don't want to put this, say this the wrong way. But again, it's kind of this whole picture. Half of patients with PID don't even have a sexually transmitted infection. It can be caused by BV. It can be caused by anaerobes and so many different things. Half of patients with PID, they don't have very obvious symptoms. If you're waiting for a patient who has multiple sexual partners with frank vaginal discharge and just a friable cervix and cervical motion tenderness, you are missing tons of patients with PID. Um, I I just think this is something I'm going to be much more careful about after reading this. My And then I guess I'll say here too, general treatment for PID, they get into this, but essentially you're doing the ceftriaxone to treat the gonorrhea. They recently increased the amount of ceftriaxone you give just in general to treat gonorrhea. So it's 500 milligrams now, depending on their weight. And if they're, if they're a larger person, then you go up to a gram. You do doxycycline uh, twice a day for 14 days, so that will treat the chlamydia. It also treats things potentially like mycoplasma and some of the other agents that can cause this. And then you also, so you do you do ceftriaxone, doxycycline, and then you do metronidazole uh, twice a day for 14 days as well to treat all these anaerobic causes and all these other causes of PID that aren't even sexually transmitted. Um, so again, the treatment is ceftriaxone, doxycycline, and metronidazole. Here's my takeaway. Well, this is how I'm thinking about this now. At least half the time, PID is not caused by sexually transmitted infections. Even if it is caused by a sexually transmitted infection, the swabs that you send for gonorrhea and chlamydia may still be negative because the infection's in the upper, not the lower genital tract. I think you just need to have a good perspective on that. I don't think we're doing patients harm by being like, oh, you've, you must be just sexually promiscuous if you have PID. Like, no, we're just literally dishing out antibiotics to try to treat this because there's so many different causes of it. I think that's just a, a change in my perspective. Two, women with PID can be asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic with extremely vague symptoms, and there is no diagnostic test There is no diagnostic algorithm. There is no combination of history and exam findings that is both sensitive and specific for PID. Your only option is to treat people for PID when they don't have it or treat or not treat people for PID when they do have it. Um, You're either going to be over-treating or under-treating, but you're not going to get it right. And so the CDC says you need to have a very low treatment threshold in initiating treatment aggressively. Again, that's ceftriaxone, doxycycline twice a day, and metronidazole twice a day. Um, including if they're not even having much findings on examination, but you can't figure out why this person who otherwise may have an STD potentially um, due to multiple sexual partners or whatever is having just vague lower abdominal symptoms, okay? I, again, this, you need to read the 2021 CDC guidelines. And it's not just for pelvic inflammatory disease. This thing's like 100 pages. It's all the different sexually transmitted infections, warts and HIV, you know, it's all sorts of stuff. And what you do in pregnancy, it's, it's a pretty high yield paper. If you're at all uncomfortable with people who come in with, you know, pelvic complaints, it covers, um, epididymal orchitis and, and things like that. And men as well, but that's it. Um, send me an email, Zach at emclerkship.com. We're starting to kind of develop just an interest list from you guys. Uh, we were potentially looking for someone cause Mike's going to no longer be a resident, right? So we may need someone to do some cases at some point, or we just need, we, you need that younger training perspective for what we do with this podcast. Uh, cause if it's just attendings talking, we're going to eventually disconnect from you. So we need 
need some people that are interested in educa- medical education, interested in podcasting, who may be interested in becoming more involved with that. Um, details to come. But send me an email if you're just like, I kind of am interested in med ed and you know, I like lecturing and here's an example, especially if you've given lectures before and things like that, um, send us an email. But otherwise, that's it. Um, until next time, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.